0: This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So St. Thomas Aquinas composed a number of prayers, and if we look carefully at the prayers that he composed, we find that he copied a lot from other people. So I thought about calling this talk Plagiarizing Your Way to Holiness with St. Thomas Aquinas, But I figured it wouldn't be a good idea to have that title on my cv and in any case st thomas isn't really plagiarizing so i settled on a title that i think is actually more apt echoing the word st thomas and divine creativity and personal prayer Uh, but before we consider what this means that he copied from other people first of all i want to prove to you that st thomas does in fact copy material for his personal prayers and for this we can look at one of his best known prayers Concede mihi, which is from the first words of the prayer in Latin, grant to me. It's also known as the prayer for the wise ordering of one's life. At some point, someone couldn't deal with a long prayer having a short title, so they had to give it a longer title. (laughs) In any case, this is one of St. Thomas' most important prayers. And Up until basically 1996, there was some debate about whether St. Thomas actually composed this prayer. But this debate was put to put to rest mostly when, wait for it, Claire Lebrun-Guanvik published a newly discovered edition of The Earliest Life of St. Thomas, written by William of Tocco. And this early account of St. Thomas's life not only attributes this particular prayer to St. Thomas, but includes the whole text of it and presents this prayer as an example of St. Thomas's virtue and william of toco writes quote it is said that he composed the prayer written below which is perfect in temperance devout in affection and polished in style which he would say every day and if you didn't hear him the first time toco adds immediately afterwards the prayer which the blessed thomas composed which he would say every day konchede mihi so something that you'll get to know as you get to know St. Thomas better, or you probably already know this, is that he was extremely careful about the use of his time. But Togo tells us that he prayed this prayer every day, and it's not a short prayer either. And that means it's worth our paying special attention to. It's a little bit lengthy, uh, but it's worth going through. You have it on your handouts. Uh, This is my translation, so if there are rough spots, that's my fault, not St. Thomas's. And uh, if I were in a normal classroom, I would have one of you read it so you don't only have to listen to my voice. But since I'm, you know, the, the, the recorder wouldn't pick up from the audience. So I'm going to uh, I'm going to read it to you and you can pray along in your heart and listen and, and read along. Grant to me, merciful God, that those things which are pleasing to you, I may ardently desire, prudently seek, truthfully recognize and perfectly fulfill. For the praise and glory of your name, order my life and grant me to know what you require of me and give me to do just what is proper and expedient for my soul. Watch over my way to you, Lord, straight and complete, not faltering during prosperity and adversity, so that in prosperity I may give thanks to you and in adversity I may preserve patience, so that in the former I may not be lifted up and in the latter I may not be pressed down. May I rejoice about nothing except what moves me toward you, nor sorrow about anything except what leads me away from you. May I desire to please no one, nor fear to displease anyone except you. May all passing things be worthless to me because of you, and may everything of you be precious to me, and you, God, above all. May all joys without you be sickening to me, nor may I long for anything that is outside you. May labor which is for you delight me, and may all rest which is not in you be wearisome to me. Frequently give me to direct my heart to you, and in my defection may you be compensated by my sorrow and intention of amendment." Make me, my God, humble without pretense, cheerful without dissipation, sad without dejection, mature without heaviness, quick without levity, truthful without duplicity, fearing you without despair, hoping without presumption, correct my neighbor without pretense, edify him by word and example without exaltation, obedient without contradiction, patient without murmuring. Give me, sweetest God, a heart vigilant, that no distracting thought may carry away from you. Give me a heart noble, that no unworthy affection may drag downward. Give me a heart invincible, that no tribulation may weary. And give me a heart free, that no violent temptation may claim. And give me a heart right, that no sinister intention may slant. Abundantly grant to me, Lord my God, understanding in recognizing you, diligence in seeking you, wisdom in finding you, a way of life pleasing to you, perseverance in loyally expecting you, and confidence in finally embracing you, to contend with your punishments here through penance, to use your benefits in this life through grace, and to enjoy your everlasting blessedness in the next life in patria through glory. Amen. So, William of Tocco is exactly right when he describes this prayer as perfect in temperance, devout in affection, and polished in style. But St. Thomas didn't compose this prayer from scratch. A series of scholars have observed that St. Thomas borrowed some phrases from a letter by Blessed Humbert of Romans, who we heard about last night. He was the fifth Master General of the Dominican Order and Master of the Order particularly during St. Thomas's adult life. Father Paul Murray, in his book Aquinas at Prayer, points out a few of these borrowings. And that's how I first became aware of it. But if you look at the actual letter by Humbert, you'll be amazed to see just how much of St. Thomas's prayer depends on it. So I put on your handout every correspondence that I could find between the letter by Humbert and the prayer by St. Thomas. It's a long letter, and it's not in English, so it's quite possible that there are additional borrowings that I missed. But you can already see that there's quite a few. So look, for example, on the back of your handout, at the top, chapter 47 on the left. Humbert says, Brothers, may you be humble without pretense, mature without weightiness, quick without levity, fearing without despair, hoping without presumption, obedient without contradiction, cheerful without dissipation, patient without murmuring. And this should sound familiar. St. Thomas takes most of this word for word And transforms it into a prayer asking God for these things. So the question is: why would St. Thomas do this? And we don't know exactly what went through his mind. No one compelled Saint Thomas to take an encyclical letter and transform it into a prayer. But I'll tell you at least how I think, how I imagine this happened. Humbert wrote a letter to the whole Dominican Order, and this letter contains a whole plethora of exhortations meant to help the friars to become better Christians and better preachers. And the letter outlines ways of acting that are suitable for everyone, and some that are especially useful for religious. Now, when St. Thomas receives this letter, first of all, he would receive it with reverence, because it's coming from the master of the order. But this master in particular, Humbert of Romans, spent a lot of time pondering and writing about the vocation of preachers, And so St. Thomas also probably had great respect for Humbert as someone who profoundly understood the Dominican vocation. And so I imagine that when St. Thomas read the letter, he saw in it, in its various parts and exhortations, a vision of the ideal Dominican friar, as well as a lot of wise counsel about how to attain that ideal. And so the text itself may have immediately resonated with St. Thomas, and not just as a Dominican, but even just as a human being and a Christian. When we read in the letter, humble without pretense, mature without weightiness, quick without levity, I think we can immediately recognize the beauty of virtue in the way that Humbert expresses it. And of course, St. Thomas already had a great zeal for virtue, but he may have found Humbert's way of expressing it particularly inspiring. Maybe St. Thomas read these words in the letter and immediately thought, Yeah, that's what I want. And then prayed, God, make me like that. Sometimes I imagine St. Thomas being more like me than... (laughs) All right, in any case, in addition to the form of the words themselves in this letter being inspiring, these exhortations came in a letter from a superior, and not just any superior, but a very learned superior. And not just a very learned superior, also a very holy superior. So Humbert of Romans was Blessed Humbert of Romans. So even though St. Thomas was already committed to living virtuously, I can imagine he also felt some kind of obligation and obedience to follow the specific exhortations in this letter and strive toward attaining this vision that Humbert was presenting. So whatever the case may be, St. Thomas knew very well that he needed divine assistance to live up to what Humbert was presenting in his letter. And so he asked God for help. As we heard last night, Prayer is a petition for St. Thomas, and so he prayed. He asked God, using Humbert's very own words, the things that St. Thomas saw in Humbert's letter he wanted for some reason or other, and so he asked God for them. Now, if I were in your place, I might be a little suspicious or even a little annoyed at this point, because here I am standing in the Dominican House of Studies, At a Thomistic Institute retreat, on the day after St. Thomas's feast day, you've come here to learn how to pray from St. Thomas, and what I've told you so far is that we should credit someone else for a great deal of one of St. Thomas' most famous and important prayers. And you might be wondering, am I one of those critical scholars who enjoys sowing doubt and undermining traditionally respected ideas and persons, because that's the M.O. of many academics? You might be wondering, am I a political Marxist who wants to downplay (laughs) personal initiative and attribute everyone's successes, even St. Thomas's, to other people or to the collective? You might be wondering what's coming next. Am I going to tell you that when we read Matthew 14, the story of the multiplication of the loaves? We, sh- uh, we shouldn't think that Jesus really worked a miracle, but that he inspired everyone to share the bread that they brought with them <laughs> and had hidden under their coats. But the answer to all of these questions is no. And to clarify, I firmly believe that Jesus worked a miracle <laughs> and multiplied the loaves on the shore of the Sea of Galilee to feed the 5,000. And I'll say even more. As the creator, Jesus gives existence to every loaf of bread that exists on earth. But what's interesting about the miracle of the multiplication of the loaves is that Jesus didn't make the loaves appear out of thin air. He could have if he wanted to, but he took into his hands loaves that already existed, then he multiplied them in the hands of his disciples. Now the point that I'm trying to make here is not exegetical or metaphysical, The fact that Jesus begins this miracle with already existing bread doesn't mean that the miracle is any less miraculous or instructive for us. Just because St. Thomas makes extensive use of a letter of Humbert of Romans doesn't make his prayer any less significant or instructive for us. In fact, we have quite a bit to learn from the fact that he borrows so much from Humbert. But before we consider what we can learn from St. Thomas's habit of borrowing, I'd like to give you just a few examples to show that St. Thomas is not alone in doing this. And I would go so far as to say that it is the practice of the saints to borrow from others in their prayers. And why should we start small? It's Saturday. We honor the Blessed Virgin Mary. Let's look at the greatest of all saints, the Blessed Virgin Mary. The vast majority of the words that we know our Blessed Lady spoke can be found in her Magnificat in Luke one 46-55. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of low degree. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his posterity forever. Now, let me read for you parts from the Song of Hannah from 1 Samuel 2. My heart exalts in the Lord, my strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, there is none besides thee, there is no rock like our God. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. But those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low, he also exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. And so on. So the Blessed Virgin Mary clearly borrowed from the Song of Hannah. And am I denigrating Our Lady by saying this? No. Right? It's the truth. And I would rather have my tongue cut out and never be able to speak. Uh, I, wouldn't, uh, I would rather have my tongue cut out and not be able to speak again than say anything against Our Lady. Uh, but... But what should we make of the fact that the Blessed Virgin Mary relies so heavily on 1 Samuel, as well as other scripture passages for her Magnificat? Pope Benedict XVI comments on this in his apostolic exhortation, Verbum Domini, on the Word of God. In paragraph 28, Pope Benedict says in Verbum Domini, Here I would like to mention Mary's familiarity with the Word of God. This is clearly evident in the Magnificat. There we see in some sense how she identifies with the word, enters into it. In this marvelous canticle of faith, the virgin sings the praises of the Lord in his own words. The Magnificat, a portrait, so to speak, of her soul, is entirely woven from threads of Holy Scripture, threads drawn from the word of God. Here we see how completely at home Mary is with the word of God. With ease, she moves in and out of it. She speaks and thinks with the Word of God. The Word of God becomes her Word, and her Word issues from the Word of God. Here we see how her thoughts are attuned to the thoughts of God, how her will is one with the will of God. So the fact that the Blessed Virgin Mary uses various ideas and phrases from Scripture doesn't mean that her Magnificat is any less wonderful— On the contrary, it shows how deeply she has interiorized the word of God and made it her own. And I'll give you another example. In the 13th century, St. Francis of Assisi composed a devotional office of the Passion, and the antiphon for the office says the following, Holy Virgin Mary, daughter of the Father in heaven, mother of our most holy Lord Jesus Christ, spouse of the Holy Spirit, pray for us. So St. Francis composed a prayer explicitly praising the unique relationships that the Blessed Virgin Mary had with each person of the Holy Trinity. Now we fast forward to the 17th century, and we have St. Louis de Montfort. He comes across either this very antiphon by St. Francis or another just like it in the tradition, and he composes his own prayer to Mary, which begins with the same reflection on her relations with each person of the Trinity. In St. Louis's prayer, Hail Mary, beloved daughter of the Eternal Father. Hail Mary, admirable mother of the Son. Hail Mary, faithful spouse of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, my dear mother, my loving mistress, my powerful sovereign. Hail my joy, my glory, my heart, and my soul. So he elaborates on what he saw in St. Francis or in the tradition. Here we have a saint, St. Louis, using the ideas and words of another saint To praise yet another saint. So, St. Thomas Aquinas is not the first to borrow from another person in his prayer. The Blessed Virgin Mary borrows from the biblical hymn of Hannah. St. Louis de Montfort borrows ideas expressed by St. Francis of Assisi. And St. Thomas Aquinas borrows from a letter of Blessed Humbert of Romans. But if we look carefully, we see that each of these saints, even though they borrow from others, they also make the material their own. They see something they like and they personalize it. They mold it, they adjust it, they expand on it. The Magnificat resembles Hannah's song, but it's not exactly the same. St. Louis's prayer to Mary resembles St. Francis' antiphon, but it's not exactly the same. And St. Thomas's prayer resembles Humbert's letter, but it's not exactly the same. So let's look back at St. Thomas. Again on the back side, the second paragraph down there on the left. He sees in chapter 51 of Humbert's letter the following, Cast away from your hearts distracting thoughts, unworthy affections, sinister intentions. But St. Thomas prays, Give me, God, a heart vigilant that no distracting thought may carry away from you. Give me a heart noble that no unworthy affection may drag downward. And give me a heart right that no sinister intention may slant. So St. Thomas sees something in Humbert's letter, a description of an upright heart, and St. Thomas meditates on what that means, and he considers what he'd need to ask God for in order to have this. So St. Thomas depends on Humbert's letter, but he expands on it. He allows it to unfold in his mind and in his heart, and then he expresses something new. So St. Thomas isn't just copying words on a literal level. He's interiorized Humbert's ideas, He's made them his own, and so what comes out is new and authentically Thomistic. Thomas, it's authentically him. The original inspiration may be from Humbert, or from someone who inspired Humbert, and ultimately from Christ himself, but what matters is that it inspired St. Thomas, and he made it his own. And this is the same thing we find with the others that I mentioned. The Blessed Virgin Mary was inspired by the Song of Hannah. Why? Why? Hannah conceived a child by a miraculous intervention of God, and her song praises God for it. The Holy Spirit would do something similar, but even greater, obviously, when by his altogether miraculous intervention, Mary would become the mother of Jesus Christ. And so there's a certain correspondence between the spiritual mystery of Hannah's life and vocation and that of Our Lady's. The mystery of miraculous motherhood resonated with the mother of God, and yet, Mary was a unique person with a unique life, and so her Magnificat was a new and personal song. St. Louis de Montfort was inspired by St. Francis of Assisi. Why? St. Francis of Assisi loved the Blessed Virgin Mary, and so when St. Louis de Montfort comes along, who's profoundly devoted to Mary, he's nourished and inspired by the meditation of St. Francis. He draws from St. Francis's thought, he dwells on it, he makes it his own, he expands on it, And so St. Louis's prayer, while rooted in the tradition, was also new and unique. St. Thomas Aquinas was inspired by Blessed Humbert of Romans. Why? Humbert of Romans was a Dominican preacher with a compelling vision of religious life that emphasized charity and temperance as a way to holiness. St. Thomas was living in the same order and wanted to attain perfection in the same way, and so he found inspiration in Humbert's words, even while he gave the ideas new expression. So what should we learn from St. Thomas's manner of composing the Conchede Mihi? I think, above all, we should learn a balanced approach to prayer. First of all, it's necessary for us to be informed by Scripture and tradition in our praying. But also, it's necessary for us, in the right context, to have freedom to express our hearts to God in a personal and original way. Pope Benedict XVI explains this very thing in his commentary on the Lord's Prayer in Jesus of Nazareth, the first volume. Pope Benedict says, Our praying can and should arise above all from our heart, from our needs, our hopes, our joys, our sufferings, from our shame over sin, and from our gratitude for the good. It can and should be a holy personal prayer. But we also constantly need to make use of those prayers that express in words the encounter with God experienced both by the church as a whole and by individual members of the church. For without these aids to prayer, our own praying and our image of God become subjective and end up reflecting ourselves more than the living God. In the formulaic prayers that arose first from the faith of Israel and then from the faith of praying members of the church, we get to know God and ourselves as well, They are a school of prayer that transforms and opens up our life. And so we learn first from St. Thomas that even our personal and private prayer must be traditional, must be rooted in the church's tradition of prayer. When Jesus' disciples saw Jesus pray, they recognized that He had a unique and unprecedented relationship with God. And so they asked him, Lord, teach us how to pray. The disciples wanted to have the same kind of communion with God that they saw their master had. And so they knew they had to learn from him how to pray. The disciples understood that they couldn't invent prayer by themselves. They had to learn it from Christ. And Jesus responds when they ask him, Lord, teach us how to pray. Jesus responds, When you pray, say, Our Father who art in heaven. In the very first words of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus confirms something that the disciples already sensed. Jesus doesn't teach them to say, My Father, but Our Father. In other words, it's as if Jesus says to them, You were right to ask me to teach you how to pray. My communion with my Father is something that I must draw you into and you must enter into. You can't pray my father by yourself alone because you can't have a private relationship with God as though you could approach God apart from me. You must pray our father because you can only come to the father through me and in the communion of the church. So when we think of prayer as Christians, what has priority is that we have to learn how to pray from Christ and the church. That our communion with God is always necessarily nourished by divine revelation, which is handed down to us and elaborated in the tradition of the church. Which is why what we're doing this weekend is so important learning from St. Thomas and the saints how to pray. But it's not enough to stop there, it's precisely in as much as we steep ourselves in the living tradition of the church that the Holy Spirit himself teaches us how to pray in ways that are original and unique to each of us. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 2672, says, The Holy Spirit, whose anointing permeates our whole being, is the interior master of Christian prayer. He is the artisan of the living tradition of prayer. To be sure, There are as many paths of prayer as there are persons who pray, but it is the same Spirit acting in all and with all. I'll read that again for you since you don't have it in front of you. The Holy Spirit, whose anointing permeates our whole being, is the interior master of Christian prayer. He is the artisan of the living tradition of prayer. To be sure, there are as many paths of prayer as there are persons who pray. But it is the same Spirit acting in all and with all. So notice how the Catechism goes from saying that the Holy Spirit is the artisan of the living tradition of prayer, immediately to there are as many paths of prayer as there are persons to pray. These are not in competition. This means that we must nourish our relationship with God with the materials handed down to us. But prayer is an expression of a living relationship, and that means that we can't limit ourselves to only saying traditional vocal prayers. The Blessed Virgin Mary didn't do that. St. Francis didn't do that. St. Louis de Montfort didn't do that. And St. Thomas Aquinas didn't do that. In fact, these saints who were so deeply in the heart of the church were precisely the ones who composed their own prayers that were so fruitful and beautiful and original that now we use their prayers. And we shouldn't think, well, they were saints, so they get to write their own prayers. The very fact that they developed a unique prayer life through the anointing of the Holy Spirit is exactly what gives us permission to do the same thing, and in fact shows us how important it is. My point here is that we need the traditional and the spontaneous or original in our prayer lives. And the saints themselves teach us this. St. Augustine said of God, O beauty ever ancient, ever new. Our prayer life should be both ancient and new. We should be like the scribes that Jesus praised in Matthew 20. Our hearts should be treasure houses from which come that which is old and that which is new. This balance of the traditional and the original, I think, is a sign of the activity of the Holy Spirit. On the one hand, the Holy Spirit is God, so he doesn't change. His truth and his ways are eternal. He's consistent in his ways of acting. At the same time, the Holy Spirit is God, so he's creative. He's always about making all things new. And so all genuine spiritual renewal is renewal within tradition. It's neither tradition alone nor renewal alone, but renewal within tradition. This is what made, made St. Francis of Assisi the perennial example of renewal in the church. He was so, so committed to the Catholic Church that he brought about spiritual renewal from the inside. While other reformers of his age and later centuries who tried to renew the church by accusation and rejection and separation showed what not to do. St. Right, Francis, with St. Francis, we have renewal within the tradition. We see what renewal ought to look like. We see the same kind of thing uh, even in academic theology. Let's say the Thomistic Resource Mont movement, for example, proposes we have to go back to the sources, back to St. Thomas himself to see what St. Thomas has to say that is new for us. I think the best analogy for what I'm describing is organic growth, the growth of a living organism. We know that all living things grow organically. A living thing doesn't cease to be the same thing, even though it grows and changes in some ways. There's continuity and development. You can't make a tree from scratch. A living thing has to come from something living, but a living tree will grow branches, and sometimes the branches will look different from each other, somewhat different from the trunk. St. John Henry Cardinal Newman used the analogy of organic growth to explain the development of Christian doctrine in the church. Our understanding of Christian doctrine develops in the church under the influence of the Holy Spirit, like a living organism that grows and develops without changing essentially what it is. I'm proposing that something similar happens in the life of prayer. We can't generate Christian prayer from scratch. But if we're rooted in the tradition of the church, then we should also see our prayer developing into something personal and unique, something that's never been seen before in the world or in the church our prayer will develop under the influence of the Holy Spirit. I was debating about whether I would give you this next section at the risk of perhaps offending people. My hope in providing edification has won the day. Um, The coherence of the old and the new, the traditional and the original, is, again, I think a, a sign of the activity of the Holy Spirit. When it happens in prayer, it can be a good sign of a spiritual life that's being vivified by the Holy Spirit. to put it kind of in in a like an inverse kind of way, if this is not happening at all, then it's likely a sign of something askew in the spiritual life. I heard from a friend several years ago who attended a Protestant uh, worship service. I can't remember which denomination a number of years ago. Uh, The preacher asked everyone in the congregation to raise their hands who knew the Lord's prayer by heart and use this as a way to identify former Catholics. Now, I don't think most Protestants would mock the Lord's Prayer like this, right? Or hopefully not Catholics either. Uh, But I know that there are some Protestants who, on principle, claiming Matthew 6-7, would discourage memorizing vocal prayers like the Lord's Prayer or the Hail Mary. Uh, Now, I've never heard a Catholic do this kind of thing to the same extreme, but I suspect that there are some Catholics who are highly averse to using written or traditional prayers. They don't always speak only extemporaneously to God. On the other extreme, I don't think it's a stretch to say that there are some Catholics who are only comfortable praying in Latin or using prayers from the saints. And if you ask them to pray extemporaneously, and if you're actually able to get them to do it, they speak like they were a middle schooler who just ran into their crush in the supermarket. (laughs) St. Teresa of Avila warns against being careless and speaking with so much familiarity to God as if he were a slave, but she also says, Speak with him as with a father, a brother, a lord, and a spouse. And so no one should have that much difficulty speaking with their father, brother, or spouse. We should be just as comfortable saying the Lord's Prayer as you are expressing ourselves in our own words in a respectful way to God. We should be just as comfortable praying in Latin as praying in supernatural tongues inspired by the Spirit. So, practically speaking, how do we grow in this area of prayer? I'd like to offer a few concrete recommendations for how to get started. If we're going to imitate St. Louis, uh, Saint the Blessed Virgin Mary, Saint Thomas, we should start with something traditional, scripture or a prayer of the saint, a prayer of a saint, praying with it until it moves us in some way, then allowing ourselves the freedom to develop it in our own way. Now, I'm not saying that priests should be adjusting the rituals of the church, right? Rituals are precisely what don't change from individual to individual. They're like the trunk of the tree, the first branches of the tree, which if they change, change slowly, or at least ought to change slowly. But for our private prayers, we should start with something traditional still. I'm sure Father Jonah will be happy to hear me recommend St. Thomas' own prayer. St. Thomas' Concede Mihi is a very comprehensive prayer. It covers all aspects of life. And so we should be able, all of us, to find something in it that touches our lives in some way or another. And so at some point during this weekend, during your prayer time, read through the de mihi, pray with it, and underline anything in particular that strikes you. Then try to express that in your own words, the desire that's expressed in that prayer. right? Write your own short little prayer based on it, even if it's just a couple sentences. And if you don't find anything particularly striking in St. Thomas prayer, then move your way back through the tradition. You can always go all the way back to the Lord's prayer. And St. Ignatius of Loyola recommends praying slowly through the Lord's prayer word by word. And I'll conclude with a story about just how effective this kind of prayer can be. A few years ago, my parents invited me to return home while I finished my dissertation which is the single layman's equivalent of what married men do when their wives support them through their PhD programs. Now, for many years, I've had the habit of spending an hour each morning in prayer. And one particular morning during this period of time when I was at home, I decided to do this kind of prayer that St. Ignatius recommends, praying slowly through the Lord's Prayer. And when I got to the petition, Deliver Us From Evil, I felt moved to elaborate, especially on this petition. I asked God to send angels to protect our property and our persons. It was a very specific request that I had never put in those words before, and it's not even the kind of thing that I regularly pray for. In any case, I finished my prayer, my day went on. Now, like any respectable 30 or 30-something-year-old living in their parents' house, I made sure to play video games regularly. <laughs> but I ran into a problem and the router was on the opposite side of the house from where my room was, which meant that my internet connection was spotty. And if you're trying to reach X rank in Splatoon 2 on the Nintendo Switch, you can't have a spotty internet connection. So I ordered some longer cables from Amazon. I rewired the router, brought the router to the center of the house, and this solved the problem, at least temporarily. Now, if you've grown up with the blessing of having a mother in your home, You probably either know or could intuit that you can't have multiple wires dangling around in the middle of the house. I mean, they were literally just hanging um, in the middle of the house. And this meant I was going to have to do some manual work to get the wires through a wall. Now, theology doctoral students may have many gifts, but they're not always expert electricians. I have a fair amount of background electronics, actually, but not in wiring a house. But my father did have experience with wiring buildings, and so he volunteered to help. Also, it's his house, so it makes sense he'd want to have a hand in drilling any holes through it. Also, his room is next to mine, and so keeping the router, you know, when the router was in the the middle of the house, I mean, meant he got better reception in his room as well. Uh, So, you know, this would work well for him, too. So we did some measurements outside the house and inside the house, and we found what we thought was a good spot to drill through the living room floor. Now it was close to the circuit breaker, but we did the measurements <laughs> to make sure that we'd be a safe <laughs> distance from anything that could cause a problem. So my dad got the drill. The drill bit went down through the living room floor, didn't make it through to the basement. It wasn't the the bit wasn't quite long. It was hard to tell exactly how much space you had between the floors, so didn't quite make it through the basement. I also just kind of out of the side of my eye noticed that, you know, the lights flickered a little bit when the drill bit went down. Um, but in any case, it doesn't go all the way through the floor. So I just kind of I'm sitting there and I just kind of feel a little bit dejected that the first attempt did not succeed. So I just sat there uh, next to the hole, just kind of like staring at it. And after a few seconds, I noticed some smoke coming out. And I could at first, your immediate thought is, you know, it's just sawdust. Um, <laughs> But sawdust doesn't usually get thicker over time. Um, and so once I, I realized pretty quickly what was going on, and so I, I called my mom. I said, Mom, call the fire department. And the fire department is on their way. And I know that they're going to have to get through the basement with all of their gear. Right? But since I moved home, whatever space was left in the basement room was filled with boxes of my theology books. And so now I have to go into the basement And I'm moving all kinds of boxes and just all kinds of stuff. Meanwhile, there's starting to be a very good amount of smoke in the room, filling the room. Uh, And not like just kind of like misty, like it was smoke. Uh, And I don't know if you've had this experience, but when there's smoke pouring, like you can see it pouring out of the wall of your house, it's not a pleasant experience. Eventually, about five fire trucks arrived at our house, and firemen came in with their axes. They hacked into the basement wall, and it turns out that we had drilled straight into the large bundle of wires that included the main 220 line into the house, and the sparks from just that moment of hitting the 220 line was enough to get the insulation in the walls smoldering. And the firemen showed us the pieces of the wall that they had taken out and for the the bottom of the ceiling of the basement that they'd taken out. And the the wood was charred on the inside, which it it was hot enough to char the wood black, but not quite hot enough to set it on fire. So I'm not sure exactly when I realized it, but it was probably when we were standing outside with the road blocked off and the fire trucks there and the firemen going in and out of the house that I remembered what I prayed that morning, that God would protect our property and our persons. And again, this was not an ordinary prayer for me. I only prayed it because I was praying with the phrase, deliver us from evil and kind of elaborating on that petition. And it seems to me that I have to attribute this to an inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Praying through the Lord's Prayer was the context in which God led me, I believe, to ask for protection for our property and our persons, and it ended up being practically a miracle that the wood never caught on fire, because there was a real possibility that the whole house could have burned down that day. Now, you might think that's what happens when you insist on playing Nintendo as a (laughs) 30-year-old, and you may not be wrong about that. But I see something else going on here. I see this as a testament not only to the effectiveness of prayer in general, but to the importance of praying with the tradition and with spontaneity, learning from the prayers of others and also making them our own. And this balance is key for allowing the Holy Spirit to lead our prayer and to lead us in the specific ways of holiness that will make us saints of the church and at the same time the unique saints that God is calling us to be. So may St. Thomas Aquinas pray for us that God will grant us this grace. Amen. Yeah, Jimmy. Do we have any like trepidation if we go to compose a prayer about like whether or not we have internalized Scripture and the writings of the saints enough? Should there be any nerves about that, or, or should we just sort of trust that the Holy Spirit will guide us? Well, Jimmy, that's Jimmy, right? Yeah. So Jimmy was asking, should we have any trepidation if we're going to compose our own prayers, that maybe we're not sufficiently formed yet uh, in Scripture and tradition to be able to express something faithful? Uh, well, I think um, Adam last night mentioned St. Thomas's principle that what is legitimate to desire, it's legitimate to ask for. And so I think as long as we're not praying for something that's manifestly sinful, uh, then I don't think we should have too much concern about whether we speak a prayer out loud to God or write it down. Now, whether you're going to publish that prayer, you know, maybe have someone else look at it first just to make sure. Um, But there's, I think in general, there is, it's a good kind of rule that in our prayer, we ought to trust that that God is teaching us over time too. Uh, and so we may not, we're not always able to, to know in the moment, well, God has inspired this. I'm thinking of St. Bernard, who says that the uh, the visitation of the word, he doesn't know when it happens, but he knows after it's happened. Um, and so sometimes, you know, in the moment, we don't always recognize when we're being inspired by the Holy spirit when it's just ourselves. Um, but but we ought to still have a, a fair level of trust and peace and that we pray for what we desire and leave it up to God to either answer explicitly or to change our desires as a result of our honest petition to Him. So I think uh I think trepidation is not I wouldn't recommend trepidation for prayer in general at all, any more than you would have trepidation before. A father, a brother, a spouse, a Lord, right? Uh, there's the, the respect that's due to God as God, and that should be present whenever we're praying. But in terms of fear that we'll express ourselves poorly, I mean, I don't have children right now, but my guess is that I'm, I wouldn't want my children to be afraid that they would express themselves poorly to me. I follow up. Let's follow up. Um, so I've heard like different interpretations, but what is fear of the Lord? What is fear of the Lord? Jimmy's asking. Uh, so St. Thomas takes it, I believe, from St. Albert, who I think get it from Alexander of Hale. No, I can't remember who he gets it from. Uh, fear of the Lord, he takes primarily to be a, a res, like a reverence, a form of reverence. Uh, so it's the kind of, uh, you know, it's based on an awareness of the greatness of what is before you. Uh, and so when you read in scripture, fear of the Lord, a crucial distinction is to understand this. I mean, if you're discerning, well, what is fear of the Lord and what is kind of another type of fear on an experiential discernment level? Uh, St. Padre Pio has a nice line that God never inspires fear that draws us away from him. So if you have a fear that causes you to withdraw from God, then you know where that fear comes from. Right. And if you have a if you have a a kind of fear or reverence or respect or even a kind of trepidation that at the same time draws you closer to God. You know, like Father Petri was saying this morning, you know, the grace of repentance. Right. This is this is still something that draws us to God. Uh, And so if there's if there's along with this fear, a sense of uh, the goodness of God, then that's a sign you're dealing more with. Uh, something inspired by God. And God doesn't. Um, what, is, what does Jesus say? Uh, I don't. I don't send away anyone who comes to me. That's a paraphrase, but um, it's the best my memory is doing this morning with the half a cup of coffee that I had. Thank you. You're welcome. Yes, and you, I'm Jack. Jack, that's right. Yeah. Are there any other prayers that you would recommend besides? Uh, for kind of like this practice. That's a great question. So Jack was asking, would I recommend any particular uh, kind of prayers to do what I recommended doing with, which is praying with it and expanding on it? Um, Scripture is actually kind of the essential way of doing this. And this is actually uh, what ought to happen in Lectio Divina. So we ought to be beginning with reading scripture. And it's in the course of the meditation that the Holy Spirit is going to be forming our desires, leading our our intellects and also leading our desires. So that what's expressed in the prayer, in the ratio, is something that is rooted in scripture, but also highly personal. So this process should, should be happening. This is kind of like what ought to be happening in Lectio Divina. So so basically, traditionally, this is what ought to happen when we pray with Scripture. Uh, and, you know, different traditions in the church will take it slightly different ways. You know, you have the Ignatian forms of contemplation. They call it contemplation. I will not cede that. Uh, I think it is ultimately a form of meditation where you have this kind of imaginative putting yourself in the biblical scene very imaginatively with all of your kind of uh, internal senses or imagined senses. Uh, And this allows for the same type of free development within ourselves of something that is traditional in Scripture to something that becomes highly personal under the influence of the Holy Spirit, ideally, right? So Scripture is really, that's where you get the Blessed Virgin Mary does that. Um, Praying with the Lord's Prayer, also, it's praying with Scripture. It's in Scripture. So the Word of God is what ought to be the primary source for this type of thing. And then in as much as you have the saints who are giving us prayers that are rooted in the word, that's kind of our, our pathway back right, to the word itself. So that's the, yeah, the first thing that comes to mind. In terms of other specific prayers, it's just useful, I think, to be aware and kind of always be kind of reading a little bit of the saints, reading the different prayers. And sometimes I think you'll find there's just a certain prayer that really resonates with you. You know, some people it's Saint, the the peace prayer of Saint Francis of Assisi, which he didn't actually write. It's just attributed to him. Um, part of it was probably from Giles of Rome, but it doesn't matter. Uh, if Saint Francis, it's like it's one of those things. Or if he didn't write it, he he should have, right? Um, so, like we, I'm fine with saying the peace prayer. It fits with with Saint Francis. Um, in any case, some people are really moved by that. It provides them a lot of meditation for how to live their lives. Uh, it's very inspiring to them, helps them stay centered and humble and, and uh, you know, centered on God and humble. Um, but pay attention. I mean, there's um, the saints have co- composed so many wonderful prayers and it's good to be uh, aware that some of them can really nourish your prayer. You know, St. Thomas has prayer before study. That's really useful if you're studying, you know, especially if that's part of your life, that study and teaching is a big part of your life. Well, you know, I hope you would find inspiration in St. Thomas's Prayer Before Study. Uh, and so it's really, you know, I could just go on and on. But the point is, be aware of the different prayers of the saints. Kind of keep looking at them and, and see what see what really strikes you and then go with that. If they're a canonized saint, that means their prayers are going to be safe for you to use. And if you're particularly drawn to one tradition of prayer, um then that very well could be the Holy Spirit's way of nourishing you in that spirituality. Because um, John Paul II has a really good uh, Wednesday audience. I think it was Wednesday audience he gave uh, on the Holy Spirit as the one who inspires the different spiritualities in the church. He's saying the certain founders of religious orders, especially, God has given them such a, a strong kind of way of living the gospel and of overcoming Uh, selfishness in their own lives, that then they become, you know, fonts of traditions that we often can find ourselves nourished within. So certain types of people, by nature, by grace, whatever, are, are going to grow, especially by living a particular way of spiritual life. And the saints give us so many different streams of tradition to kind of bathe in. So if you find, you know, if you find that everything Dominican you come in contact with, you really inspires you. Well, maybe you should hang out more with the Dominicans, you know. And, you know, you can follow the analogy through other orders, which I won't mention in this talk. <laughs> but you know them, right? If you I'll read. Oh, yeah. OK, I won't go back on my word. You know, what you're, you know, the different spiritual traditions in the church. Are there any other questions? Yes, Isabella? Yeah, so I had a question for Shane. I are thinking about the Magnificat Mm -hmm. um, and like thinking maybe about like what you think of the word um, magnify in terms of using that term to borrow um, because I think sort of magnification as metaphor is very prevalent in her uses, particularly in the Middle Ages. So this word magnify being reflected in, in the Magnificat as well as in other things rather than using the terminology. Okay, so Isabel was critiquing my use of that. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I was just I was just giving you a hard time. So Isabel was was asking, um, you know, I use the term borrow, uh, and I use that term because in in uh, in Conchete Mehi there are I mean literally the same words, right? And so I figured borrow was a better word than stealing, um, because stealing you're doing something without someone's permission. Um, I don't know what a better word there's, uh, there has to be in the English language, a better word for taking something with their permission. That's not like explicitly by their permission. What, what was it? Citing, but he doesn't cite his sources, which is Use? he uses. Yeah. Also sounds, yeah, he uses, he uses the letter of Humber. Yeah, that's right. That's good. Um, so, but the question was, what do I think about the term? magnify, because the Blessed Virgin Mary uses that term in the beginning of the, her Magnificat, and whether that would be a good term to express what's happening in the tradition, uh, it makes sense uh, to me. I think you would want to trace it, you would want to focus though with what Our Lady does, that, that ultimately what's happening in this process is the Lord is being magnified. It's not the other, um, It's not the other author principally. Right. So St. Thomas isn't magnifying Humbert when he's do, when he's writing his prayer. Uh, he's magnifying the Lord in the truth that Humbert expresses in the form of an exhortation and St. Thomas expresses in the form of a prayer, a petition. Uh, but. I don't know enough about the term. I mean, you know, when I read the Magnificat, I think of magnify, you know, literally when it's like it's making great. Uh, I just think of a magnifying lens. Um, and how you get to see bigger. Others get to see bigger. You know, it's like you look at Our Lady, and God is big when you look at Mary. You know, she magnifies the Lord. Um, that's just a rambling. I, I really don't have anything more intelligent to say. If you'd like, you can tell me more of your thoughts up here. You could record into the microphone tell it, because you've studied this more. You've thought about this more than I have. Yeah, it's just a very medieval thing to think about. Um, the article's magnification as metaphors, So thinking about this terminology, particularly when it comes to like her involvement. Devotion. But I it struck me as being very you were talking about. That's cool. Thank you for that. I was not aware of that. So in the middle the middle ages, magnification as an expression for the development of prayer. Cool. Thank you very much. So I have one more you you win. <laughs> <laughs> um I pray I play a lot with like poetry. Uh-huh. is it appropriate then to sort of do the same thing, like far and from it and or in your view like I was talking to Gabrielle like, last night about like praying with like Jared, Melly, Hopkins. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Did a lot and like repeat their So, it's it appropriate to do the same thing? that you have any like reproaches or advice on, just be careful doing that because it isn't like scripture that you know. And you introduced yourself to me this morning, but I forgot your name. Emma. Emma, Thank you. Sorry. So Emma was asking about whether we uh can use this process of praying and elaborating on uh, say poetry or something that's not scripture. And the example that she gave was Gerard Manley Hopkins. Now, I think the easy answer with Hopkins, I'd say generally, yes, that's a, you know, if you're going to pick a poet to do this with, uh, that's not a, you know, not, you could, you could do a lot worse. Right. Um, I mean, it depends somewhat on the, the poet and what they're expressing. Uh, so, a poet is going to be expressing in other forms certain truths, right? So if we find through a particular poem an expression of a truth that is, uh, it's expressed in a way that is like through a purified imagination that is not going to incite sinful desire or something, uh, then I think it can be a, a helpful way. I mean, there's a reason that the church prays with songs, it's not an accident that so much of the worship of the church is expressed in kind of poetic form, and you have Saint Thomas. Some of Saint Thomas's greatest compositions are going to be his office for the uh, his office for Corpus Christi, and so he's going to express in poetical form what is, you know, he's he's already worked out in systematic and scientific form, and there's something in poetry that allows our it. it causes our affectivity to rise, uh, you know, in ways that Aristotle could explain better than I could. Um, and so, so song and poetry can be very effective ways of lifting our hearts to God and meditating on their content. I mean, well, St. Ephraim, St. Ephraim, uh, the Syrian, I mean, expresses basically all of his theological thought in the form of songs. Uh, and it's profound. I mean, deep meditation, um, so in terms of what guidelines or reproaches, if it's someone who, especially the the saints have found inspiring, I I'd say that's a good, good thing. Um, if it tends to, you know, over time, cause like problems for yourself spiritually, then obviously don't go deeper with it. But if you're finding that it really nourishes a sense of contact with God and of, of love for God and a virtuous life, then you're good. But but I think, there, you know, this is a matter of balance as well. You know, we ought to be spending most of our time using the the kind of inspired prayers of, you know, nothing compares to Scripture. Right. They are the inspired word of God. Nothing else is right. And so we ought to give a certain primacy to Scripture in our prayer. Uh, But that doesn't mean we can't from time to time and in pieces and in various ways supplement that with other poetry that will lead us into the kind of the heart of what's being said in the word. Um, But if you could do something with like St. Paul's inspired hymns and songs, specifically spiritual songs or hymns or poetry, that's going to be your best bet, I would say, if you're particularly inclined to that. Thank you, doctor. Yeah, my pleasure.